0: Oh, we haven't seen *La La Land* yet. I was like, "Oh, guess what? We're going tonight."
1: That's my friend Sean Malloy, our resident film critic. Find out the context behind that coming up. Welcome to a very special Academy Awards edition of *Stage Presence*. Hi, I'm Josh Pineda, the curating editor at Beat. In each episode, I'll be talking with music-minded people that make up indie and alternative culture. Join me as I piece together the cultural context behind innovative artistry and discover your next favorite artist along the way. How's it going friends? Welcome to a very special Oscar Sunday edition of Stage Presence. Episode 13, we're talking La La Land. I go to the movies with Sean Malloy and talk in depth about the musical phenomenon that racked up 14 nominations tonight. It's the launch of our Music for Screen series here on Stage Presence, where I'll be talking about music's impact on sort of the visual culture we live in, both in TV and film. So I love film and television, and I think we live in an incredible era where a large array of TV shows and movies use music as an intertwined storytelling element. It's not a new concept, but it seems to be amplified in this golden age of television and growing acceptance of the indie spirit, both in music and in film. So in this series, I want to dive into the stage presence and cultural context of music for screen large and small. And in recent memory, we've sort of seen organic ways of infusing music into both film and television. Crazy Ex-Girlfriend, Sing Street, La La Land, Frank, Stranger Things, and even the upcoming Twin Peaks revival all do so by integrating their music as a sort of tonal element in the aesthetic of the show. So a perfect way to sort of capture that is actually from a quote from Sing Street. Um, While they're watching the music video for Duran Duran's Rio, one of the characters states, Perfect mixture of music and visuals. It's short and to the point. Look at it. I mean, what tyranny can stand up to that? And that's sort of what I want to get at how music influences the experience of watching, but also how it comments on culture in general in collaboration with the visuals. So today I want to answer the question, what makes this movie a good example of music culture's influence on media and screen? And I think La La Land is an interesting film to sort of examine that. As I mentioned today, I'm joined by my friend Sean Malloy, he's a film critic. He's also the lead editor for Informer Media Group and the host for the Alpha Zone podcast that can be found on all major platforms wherever you stream your podcasts. You can reach him at seanmalloy 426 at gmail.com for any inquiries. But this is not the first time me and Sean have talked movies. We actually did it quite a bit in college. So in this episode, we get nerdy with La La Land. Our goal here is that you listen to the full episode and go straight into the Oscars tonight with a more informed view of the film as we see how many awards it racks up. So the music you've been listening to is by Texas Radio Fish. It's called Just One Look. I thought it set the perfect scene for our jazz film conversation. So after this jazz break, we'll get to our conversation with Sean Malloy, and he'll share his review of La La Land.
0: Okay, so for a movie to stand out for me and for me to fall in love with it, it has to get the complete gamut of emotions out of me. It has to make me smile and cry and laugh and feel something deep. And I think that's what Lala La Lin did this year. And I should have known it was going to do it from the beginning because we'll talk about him. But uh, Damien Chazelle uh, of Whiplash, I just think he has such an amazing... Creative talent of getting all those different emotions out of his actors and out of his film and out of his editing. Um, no, but I fell in love with Alan in the first time I saw the trailer. I think from the first showing of them walking into uh, Sebastian's first job, as we see on screen, as the uh, the restaurant piano player. They come together and the camera pulls a 360 around them and you're just taken off into this, into this fantasy world of like music and acting and in Los Angeles. And I make the joke all the time that I'm not a fan of the city of Los Angeles, but I think the way it was shown in this film is like a, it's totally cliche, but as a reviewer, I have to use it also. It's this complete love letter to the city. And I think the way they use on location rather than sound stages is brilliant. And it's challenging. And for that to actually be done is not easy when it comes to a filmmaking side. I think the leads are absolutely brilliant. I think Emma Stone is going to win the Oscar. I think if this was any other year besides uh, one that Manchester by the Sea didn't come out and Casey Affleck wasn't nominated, I think Gosling would have a great uh, chance at the Oscar as well. But this is my unabashedly favorite film of the entire year. And another tick is how many times have I seen it in theater? And that answer is five times. And so.
1: Wow, you beat me out by three.
0: Yeah. So, <laughs> go so I caught it as soon as it went wide. And then I went back and I caught it on New Year's. So I didn't have anything to do. Mm-hmm. And then it went wide again on IMAX. And so I was like, let me just go see what this is like <laughs> on this like huge screen. And then I was like, yep, just as good. And then I've had two friends that they've made comments of, um, Oh, we haven't seen La La Land yet. I was like, oh, guess what? We're going tonight. And I would just find (laughs) reasons to go see this movie and it never gets worse it just i only find more things to appreciate about it and i just i'm head over heels for this film and so it's hard for me to describe a film as perfect because i can find little flaws in it every once in a while mm-hmm. the only flaw i would have in la, la Land is like there's a middle 15 minutes where there's like back-to-back montages and i kind of would want that spaced out a little bit more
1: mm-hmm. the, pla- but- the planetarium and then the the dating sequence
0: it's the planetary. Yeah. It's like right in a row. It's like planetarium dating sequence. And I think on the soundtrack, it's called summer montage. Mm-hmm. And then in the middle of that, you have the montage of the piano playing at the, at the, the lighthouse, the jazz club. And I think having three of those back to back to back with no lyrical songs inputted kind of, it doesn't stumble, but it definitely like I notice it. And if I notice it, that kind of is like a, a tick down, but not really. So. If I'm using my scale with the way I do reviews, I'm still giving it a flat A. If I'm using a number scale, it's like nine point nine 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 out of (laughs) ten, and that would be like the one tick down. But no, I think it's I think it's the best film coming out this year. So yeah, I mean. It's That's not a brief review, but that's a review.
1: Right. <laughs> well, I think it's brief enough and we'll go into it. Just touching on that, Um, the IMAX element, I mean, I thought the first time I saw it, it the theater was completely sold out and the only row left was right up front. And I think it a- actually added to the experience because you do feel immersed just sitting back and watching the film, yeah. but right when you're up front, you feel even more in sort of Chazelle's dreamy um, aesthetic. But sort of setting up La La Land, I saw a sneak peek of the film sort of last fall during a director's panel at EW Pop Fest, and Damien Chazelle talked about how he plays with the reality and artifice paradox of both the city of Los Angeles as a concept and the musical genre, um, and sort of the dualism there that I found was sort of the play on Natural and Artifice, Indian Studio, Stereotypical LA, and Quotidian LA, and this play on Between Reality and Dreams. And I think La La Land exists somewhere in between each of those. Um, so we probably won't get in-depth on all of it, but I really want to cover why La La Land works as a movie on artistry and musical artistry in particular. So I want to start off with this question. Overall, what do you think about the use of music and the use of jazz as a driving force? So jazz
0: is the driving force behind one character, right? I think hmm. jazz is the driving force behind uh, Ryan Gosling's Sebastian. But because jazz is so much so often referenced within this movie and also going back to chazelle's past in whiplash where they're they're kind of they're linking bonds tends to be like these iconic jazz musicians specifically charlie parker and the joke of like how he got his nickname birdman Mm -hmm. um in whiplash it's it's they tell the example of he had a Sybil thrown at him and in (laughs) this one it's uh he liked eating chicken wings and that's how he got the nickname Bird. And I think the linking of jazz between the two films is creating this like meta jazz universe in Chazelle's movies, which is interesting. But I love the fact that Lala La Land uses jazz as a, as a sort of nostalgic remembering of the past. It's Gosling and um, John Legend's discussion when they're in the recording studio of gosling lives in the jazz past and refuses to move forward but do we actually see that as a hindrance of the character or do we appreciate this nostalgic quality of his love for the specific type of music Mm -hmm. regarding music in the movie i don't know if jazz is the driving force of the film itself because other than i want to say the main montage in the lighthouse as i previously referenced Jazz really isn't in the movie. I mean, do you agree with
1: that? I think that it's more of a classical film score, and it, it's yeah. infused with jazz. But I, okay. I agree that it's not a primarily jazz sort of tonal nature. Yeah, because it seems a little bit more planned out than improvisational. Sure, uh, just because of the nature of it. But yeah, I, I agree.
0: Yeah, um, I mean, you, you just take the opening number, right? And you open with that beautiful freeway sequence, and you get the opening of Panavision, and you're like, okay, this is a throwback to Hollywood, and you're immediately set into a musical world, which is you brought up earlier is some people didn't like it because it's a musical and you have to buy in from that first song. If you buy in, you're going to fall in love with this movie. And if you don't, there's going to be some friction between audience and and the film itself. When they do use jazz, I think it's great. I think the, the dialogue between me and Sebastian, the first time they set foot in that same jazz club, the lighthouse. And as he's describing that Jazz is frenetic and it's exciting and someone got shot over jazz. And I think that's brilliant. That's a great piece of dialogue. And so, narratively, the use of jazz to propel the movie forward is brilliant. And I think how you phrased it as a classic film score with the infusion of jazz when they can... It works. I think everything about that works.
1: I want to touch on the topic of is this a musical in a bit, but sort of starting off before that, I don't think it's an actual musical per se. I think it lacks a little bit of, uh, as you mentioned, some of the songs are not lyrical. So I think it's more of a, again, sort of this new genre of a music movie that take music as a sort of driving force and use it in terms of plot instead of just atmospherics. So I think that this is more uh, relating to that as is Whiplash. And I want to share with you this quote. Chazelle shared with Entertainment Weekly that both of these films are about the struggle of being an artist and recognizing your dreams with the need of being human. But La La Land is just less angry about it. Uh, You started talking about this thematic sort of motif between the two films it's sort of a chazelle auteur situation but can you talk a bit more about how you feel that chazelle is sort of a music movie director yeah i think so first i want to i want to
0: talk on that quote from that chazelle gave to entertainment weekly and it's like a, how these two films are different i think whiplash you see the violence in the editing so miles Teller throughout that entire movie he's angry because he's not making it he's angry at J.K. Simmons' character. He's angry at him not performing up to his measure. And you see this physical violence on screen. You see him putting his fist covered in blood in the ice to to, to have his hands go numb so he can play harder. You see the blood splatter on the symbols. You see objects thrown. You see J.K. Simmons berating the talent in his room. Everything about that is about Miles Teller's character achieving his dream of becoming the next Charlie Parker However, it's done so in a way that, like you said, is anger. Even when it comes to the human connections with Miles Teller's character, he has the brief romantic uh, engagement in the movie with the uh, the girl at the movie, or in the film with the girl at the movie theater. He quickly dismisses her in a very stubborn slash angry way because she's a detriment for his rise to fame or rise to talent. And so, It's about things coming in the way of dreams. What La La Land does when it comes to embracing your dreams, you get these two characters that are both chasing their dream, right? And rather than giving a bunch of situations that could impede them, although we do get that, ultimately it is is a film about two characters realizing their dreams and actually fulfilling their dreams, I think. But it's done with a romantic way with this musical format with these sweeping shots and soft lenses, and using Los Angeles as the background is is a perfect like undertone of this film. We understand that Whiplash is filmed in um, or does take part in New York, but at no point is New York central to that story. So therefore, there's no there's no of this like quote unquote like love letter to anything other than drumming and this you get a love letter in all La La land you get a love letter to the city you get a love letter to jazz you get a love letter to love you get a love letter to life yeah i just i just think they they both function in the same way however they go about it in different uh in different Ways I can't th- I can't think of a better word, Josh.
1: <laughs> so let me ask you this question. Sure. So Whiplash is about being a better musician. So yep. thematically, it's about music. Sure. But would you say, sort of, what I'm reading into, sort of, what you just said, is would you say that La La Land is more of a music movie than um, Whiplash is? Ooh,
0: more of a music movie. That is a good question. So if I had to pick the music movie out of the two. I think it's Whiplash is the technically music movie. It's all about technique of the music and it's all about performing the music accurately and it's all about being the best at the music you can be. I think La La Land does bring up music when it comes to Sebastian's progress, but it's never about Sebastian's skill. There's no skill involved. And I think that's a big difference. Yeah, if I, yeah, I want to know your read on this because as much as I see it, from a film's perspective, your you're indie beat, I want to know your opinion about this and see which one is like the definitive uh, music movie.
1: I would say, I would actually counter your point and say that La La Land is more of a music movie. Okay. Just because of the, um, I think, again, we have this thematic element in Whiplash, sort of the yeah. anxiety of being in this conservatory. Whiplash has more of that trying to pursue your dreams, especially in that ending where both. Miles Teller's character and J.K. Simmons' character sort of find a balance, finally, in the last minute of the film, realizing their dreams together after this sort of antagonism. But I feel like La La Land, oh. using this sort of through line of, do you like jazz, I don't like jazz, and then in the end, Mia loves jazz, I think <laughs> yeah. that that sort of makes it more of a mo- uh, music movie. And I think that's where the controversy comes in that we'll talk about in a few minutes. about sure. um Sort of is this a white savior film for jazz and I personally, my answer to that is no because I don't find that uh Sebastian is really saving jazz. I feel like he's just opening his dream, but I think exposing jazz to Mia makes this more of a music movie because of that devotion to the sound
0: uh, yeah, I think that's a brilliant point. I think you brought up like two great points right there i think the entire dialogue sequence as they're looking at the griffith Observ- observatory where uh sebastian looks to mia and he just like frankly says but you love jazz now and it's okay and i think like as the audience i think he's kind of directing it directing that towards us too it's like we made you fall in love with this genre of music or like this film or however you say um but yeah i think that's yeah Man, that's a good point. I have to. I might have to go watch Whiplash after we're done recording and actually read it, analyze a couple. Of
1: <laughs> they're both great and quintessential yeah. Chazelle films, though. So I think yeah. that they're in the same. Um, I would even call it in the same universe. Um, especially since we consider and I want to touch on this point on casting. Yeah, Miles Teller was supposed to play the Sebastian role, um, along with Emma Watson supposed to play the uh, Mia role, but right. they fell out after sort of contract negotiation and emma's signing on to the beauty and the beast uh live action film wh- which would have been a better casting choice keeping them younger or uh making the new choice i know some of it has to do with the studio uh pushback and um the long process in making the film but do you think that yeah. they made the right choice in ending up with emma stone and ryan gosling
0: so okay so i the quick answer is yes right and i think the reason i like where so in real life, Ryan Gosling and Emma Stone aren't far apart on the age bracket, right? I think it's like six or seven years. Mm-hmm. But the way the movie makes it feel is Ryan Gosling is really taking this this like teacher role, this older, more mature role in teaching Emma Stone about jazz. And I think by him playing the role a little bit older, even though he really isn't, it allows this process to happen. Um, if you were to cast Emma, Emma Watson and Miles Teller, very along the same page of age ranges um i don't know if i like miles teller and i'm not going to knock him because i like i like many of his films he does but i don't think he's going to have the same buying in as gosling does uh with the role of sebastian i don't think i can buy in with him being this mid-30s guy that just wants to open up his own jazz club and maybe that's me just refusing to have like the belief on screen but it might have been a piece of friction for me I'm like i don't really like you can't you're not selling me that role as well as gosling does now emma watson is brilliant in anything she does and so she might be the one that we can exchange her for emma stone and it might have been okay But the one scene, and we'll discuss it later, that I don't know if she has the right gravitas to pull off, even on this, again, I still love Emma Watson, is the audition. I think the way Emma Stone's eyes hold that camera lens for so long, and she just speaks volumes with just her eye movements, and the swelling of tears, and uh, it's just, oh, that scene is so good.
1: (laughs) (laughs) That's one of of my favorite scenes in the film, and I agree that uh, Emma Stone sort of has a more genuine quality because I feel like Emma Watson, we kind of put her on this pedestal as an actress, She's um, expect- Hermione Granger, so, yeah. She, she is, and I mean, especially with her uh, role in the UN, I feel that that adds uh, sort sure. of a new layer. So I think she's perfect as a Belle casting, sort of this idealized, romanticized character. But I, I agree that I think the humanness would be lost in her casting, and I agree with the Miles Teller point as well. I just don't buy him as, especially as Sebastian being this ob- jazz-obsessed character— yeah. I don't buy him in that role. I buy him as a drummer in Whiplash. So I, sure. and, and I kind of like that separation of not using... Uh, uh, it was key with J.K. Simmons in using him as the boss at the restaurant because you sort of get that same feel of character, an intense guy trying yeah. to to get their um, employees or their students to do something they want to do and sort of that manipulating quality. So I think that use of uh, doubling of character in this universe of um, Chazelle worked, yeah. but I don't think the Miles Teller would have. Emma Stone and Ryan Gosling are no strangers to each other and no strangers to L.A. in general. They both starred in Crazy Stupid Love and Gangster Squad, both yep. taking place in the same setting, so I'm wondering if that sort of also adds to your interpretation.
0: So, yeah, I think having films like under each other's belt, like with the chemistry together, I think that shows and that fires off on screen really well. I think like the the best story like I've heard within like within the last couple of weeks about La La Land and their chemistry. And this is like a peek behind the curtain. If anybody listening to this, like ends up like following me on Twitter, I was in like a romantic comedy mood the other day. And so I actually rented crazy, stupid love and I never <laughs> saw it. And so it's all like they have chemistry from the very first scene. And I think it's extraordinary that there's the entire scene in the bedroom where they're not having sex. They're just talking to each other. That's almost entirely like just totally improvised and I think that shows like the quality of the actors and like their their chemistry between regarding like the comment on Los Angeles um so I have to ask you this Josh you're you're my LA guy so Gangster Squad definitively LA because you're going after Mickey Cohen in the middle of 1940s which he's running Los Angeles so that's a definitive LA movie do you think Crazy Stupid Love is an LA movie even though a lot of it is on location in LA
1: Beyond um Gossing's character in that movie, no. I think that movie could take place anywhere. Sure. But being this sort of um uber masculine and sort of uh, suave guy yeah. um with a with a house in the Hollywood Hills, I think that adds to his characterization there. Yeah. So um I mean you could transfer it to New York and um give him a penthouse apartment in Manhattan Yeah. Um, and have the same quality. But I think that's what makes it L.A. I think you have, it's it either, it's a big city movie. And I yeah. think just adding the characterization of Gossing makes it L.A. And I think Gosling in general would be considered nowadays an L.A. guy. Uh, even though we sort of have this, envisionings of him in other films in the midwest with Lars and the real girl i still think that gosling even though he's canadian we, we can put him into la and right. we wouldn't mind
0: i think if you're talking gosling in la right i don't think it gets more los angeles than drive by uh, mm. nicholas winding Reffin. um i think that's his definitive la movie but i think the point you brought across is like they they have taken roles where they're like definitively los angeles and i think it shows and. Now, I had not done my homework as much on Chazelle, but is Chazelle an L.A. guy?
1: Chazelle, so La La Land, for some context on this, is sort of Chazelle's um, putting his story of moving from the East Coast to Los Angeles and trying to pursue his creative dreams. He's sort of casting it into uh, both Emma's character, Mia, and Ryan's Sebastian, um, and sort of transforming that in a new way beyond sort of writer-director into sort of a more um, generalized artist. Sure. Um I wouldn't associate Chazelle as LA only because you get sort of this intense east coast quality in Whiplash. Yeah. And I haven't seen a guy in Madeline on a park bench yet, but I feel like that you still get that quality there. So I think Chazelle is still east coast, but I think that with this film we sort of see him uh we see what he values in LA and I think he can continue on that path.
0: Yeah. I got yeah, totally.
1: Um so yeah, so we talk about casting and we talked a bit about Chazelle as a director. So let's talk about studio pushback. Okay. So, uh this movie was the film that Chazelle and Justin Hurwitz wanted to make together.
0: And for for context, Justin Hurwitz the the composer for the entire movie.
1: Right, exactly. And also the composer for Whiplash. So yep. they've worked together, they went to Harvard together. So this is the movie they wanted to make, but it took uh, 5 years to construct because yeah. of the studio pushback. And do you want to talk a bit about
0: that? Yeah, I think the studio pushback for me is one of the articles I was reading. I think it was uh, – it might have been The Hollywood Reporter. could have been Deadline. I'm trying to remember where I read it. Anyways, like I think the most ridiculous pushback – I mean not ridiculous. You understand it from a studio perspective with like money – my favorite story about the, the studio pushback is they don't want to do a modern musical because mu- musicals are dead, right? Like, because clearly, because things like Chicago never win, like, Oscars. I'm like, oh crap, never mind, they do. And I think, like, <laughs> a movie like The Artist, which was, like, a silent film, but kind of, like, functioned as a musical because there's no dialogue. Like, what happened with that? Oh, it won an Oscar. So, yeah, I think I understand the studio pushback for making a modern musical. But I think those like qualms about it kind of starts kind of start to fall apart when it comes to casting and Chazelle after he blew up with Whiplash. But the pushback I thought was like the funniest and most ironic is the studio first wanted to shoot it all on sound stages and Mm -hmm. Chazelle's like, no, it's a Los Angeles movie. We have to do this on location. And I think they scouted something like 95 different locations. And I don't know the layout of Los Angeles, but I definitely know some parts don't link up correctly. But showcasing los angeles as the city it's necessary to do these things on location or you just would not have the same effect
1: right los angeles is very iconic in sort of its architecture and its visual aesthetic i mean i want to talk a bit about that but yes it's very sprawling la and uh there's a map on curbed la that shows uh, a lot of the um on location shots and it's across the map anywhere from Hermosa beach um, in the su- southwest side, all the way yeah. to the northeast side uh, in Pasadena. So it's this sprawling thing and it doesn't match up. But I think we still get this sort of story of uh, creatives moving to sort of the east side of LA. And yeah. I'll talk, uh, I'll talk a bit about that in a bit. But, uh, touching on sort of studio pushback. So, so reports, uh, told the Hollywood reporter that Giselle was told to change the male lead from a jazz pianist to a rock musician.
0: Oh, interesting.
1: Change the complicating opening number and drop the story's bittersweet ending. And we'll talk a bit about the ending yeah. later on. Um, and one of the producers on the project said, every one of the contours that felt special and distinctive were the things that we were urged to change. So I, I want to get your sort of opinion on that. This is why it took five years to make because the, the funding for the first project fell through because Hollywood wanted to make the film very Hollywood. Sure. So, um. So what do you think about that? Do you think it would have read better or worse if this were uh, a rock film uh, and not a jazz film?
0: I do. I think if this read as a rock film, you wouldn't have this this sense of nostalgia that I touched on earlier in the show. Mm-hmm. Um, you wouldn't... You can have... So let's just take... Okay, let's just take the first time we walk into Sebastian's uh, apartment. You have his sister and she's sitting on the one stool that one jazz musician <laughs> sat on 50 plus years ago and he has an emotional reaction to that right it's a thing it's a piece of wood that his, one of his icons sat on and later on it's showcased at the club at the end how important this piece is. is what's the equivalent of that is it a guitar pick is it a mic stand is it a is it a bass i don't mm-hmm. know that you can have the same love affair with a genre of music like you can with jazz and the way you know sebastian has written it's so entrenched with jazz right And i think that goes with sebastian's style it's his throwback shoes and his wool suits and his skinny ties that has like that 60s design right in the middle (laughs) Uh like how do you what do you what would you do with that with a rock musician like okay so we're gonna give him uh leather pants that are cut in the jeans and like uh denim jackets i think if you change it to a rock film it changes what makes this movie special
1: i agree and i think i mean the only thing that i could see making this rock it would read over overly kitschy in the california aesthetic maybe a beach boys theme or an eagle's theme and i i think it would ruin everything that you just stated i think it doesn't make sense as a rock film only right. because it's not sort of telling the drive of an indie musician as much yeah. as it is telling this narrative of any creative moving yeah. and pursuing their dream. So I agree.
0: So so let me ask you this question. So what's... We'll talk about, like, the genre of a musical, like, in a bit, right? Of how the movie function as one. Mm-hmm. Can you have the same musical if it's a rock movie? Or does it become Rock of Ages?
1: I was about to say that. It does become Rock of Ages. Yeah. I don't think that you can yeah. have a uh a musical that's rock based without it, you either have to make it uber futuristic and either have to get uh the music of one artist such as Janelle Monet or Saint Vincent and base it off that and um to if you set it in modern day then you end up getting Rock of Ages or Mamma Mia. And then you just you (laughs) get that (laughs) you get that uh not so great quality films see
0: now i want chazelle to, to do a remake of Mamma mia on a greek <laughs> island and see what happens
1: <laughs> <laughs> I feel like in that territory, we'll start sort of mixing together Wes Anderson and Giselle into some sort of weird third uh, realm. So yeah. I don't know if I well, want I was like, that.
0: <laughs> yeah, we don't have enough miniatures in this movie. We have to call Wes and figure out what we're going to do with this. <laughs>
1: <laughs> That's awesome. So uh, going off that point, so I want to ask you the same question I answered earlier. Is this a musical? Okay,
0: so growing up, my mom had me watch... Any musical that was possible. And I felt this friction with the musical genre because I didn't understand it. My, my, my fundamental problem with musicals is why the hell are they singing when they could just be talking the scene, right? I didn't understand like why randomness would just like break into song and dance. And the one thing I can say about Whiplash is it does have those moments, right? It has the opening number. It has Mia's bedroom. It has, you know, the the first City of Stars sequence. But when you think about when music is incorporated into the movie, it's a man behind a piano. Or it's a set in a jazz club. Or it's John Legend. It's their concert, right? And so it's music put into a movie where it makes sense. Nothing feels forced. And I think you brought that up with Sing Street earlier. It's a movie enhanced by music. But I don't know if I can call it a musical. So are, are we thinking this is like a new genre of incorporating these like elements into a film?
1: I think so. And I think we sort of started getting that early on with Frank a couple years back.
0: And so Frank was this weird, this movie with me where I, I got halfway through it and I was like, I was enjoying like all of the, just the performances. I think Fastbender as Frank is great. <laughs> I think Donald Gleason, I think he's, he, I think he's perfect as like, Not a tortured artist but a kid who plays in a band And gets pulled in for this like experimental recording Session I think the way music Is incorporated that again it makes sense Like they don't put music in there just for The hell of it they put it because it has a purpose For the scene or for the line Of dialogue or for a narrative structure And I think that is what's important I think yeah so we can throw Frank Into this like new genre of like what makes sense
1: Right and I think I would call it A music movie Um, and I think It sort of gets its start In sort of the rockumentary um when we start to get sort of this influx of narrative into sort of concert films. So yeah, I don't think it's a I don't think it's a musical only because I think it do, it lacks the number of songs to be a musical yeah. as well. We get three main songs that well four. So we get Another Day of Sun, Someone in the Crowd, Yep, City of Stars and the Audition. Well right. um, and everything else is sort of playing off those four themes in other ways. Yeah, especially if you take a listen to the score, like Rialto is an instrumental version of one of the previous themes, and yeah. we get sort of that um, callbacks between and to sort of make it cohesive. So I think there's a purpose to to the music that makes it different than just spontaneous singing and dancing. Yeah, and I want to yeah. ask you about this: Does the quality of singing also make you feel like this is more authentic? Because so, oh, yeah, because Gosling and Emma Stone aren't the best singers. It's an effective vocal quality, but you still get this couchiness in the in the music.
0: Yeah, I think, okay, so here's, so I can't knock Stone and Gosling for their singing, because, like, once upon a time, I thought I knew how to sing, and then I, like, one time I listened to myself record, I'm like, oh, we're never trying that again.
1: Like, <laughs> oh, I want those recordings.
0: Yeah, no, no one's seeing those recordings. <laughs> like, so, okay, so Emma Stone is clearly the better singer of the two. Can we agree on that?
1: Yes, definitely. Okay.
0: So she has her audition sequence. And so then, when I, when I saw, like, we're discussing this movie, I went back and kind of traced, like, what? Has she sung in anything else? The other thing she has soundtrack credits are, soundtrack credits on is, uh, Andy Samberg and Lonely Island's, uh, pop star, Never Stop, Never Stopping, She's from on like earlier. Yeah. So she plays this, like, this pop diva that's like, totally into, like, um, Latin, stereotypical like rock music and so mm-hmm. there's one song all about what's it called it's it's called a little bit more spicy and like it just it's such a stereotype for the movie but she sings in that one too so i can't knock her singing as much as it fits right it fits as an actress and it, it fits her character and she has that that warmness to her voice that makes you kind of attracted to whenever she sings with gosling you do know his voice is a little more rough that you can tell he's not classically trained singer, which which makes me sad is that I haven't heard a rumor plus or minus yet is I want them to perform it at the Oscars. So I want them to perform that song together because I think the magic of that song is they're both their the rawness of their voices and not being singers. They're actors who can sing. So the other thing that like fits with this idea is the big City of Stars number that translates that are I'm using the wrong word, actually moves into the sweeping score and then back to the actual singing at the piano. As we get that awesome narrative, we're moving the narrative forward with like a bunch of cuts rather than I'm going to step by step show you of what's happening is you get their take where they're both like chuckle at each other. And I think that's like the best take to use for that. It's like, it'd be very easy to just like, okay, no, we're going to do it again and sing this straight through. And I love the fact that you have ryan gosling's cut of like laughing at emma stone in the booth and i think it's like it's super heartwarming and it it works for the characters and it works for the film yeah
1: yeah i agree and it's very raw and it's very real um and i think it adds to sort of this uh quality about the music movie that we're not just seeing spontaneous singing and dancing you can imagine um seb and mia sitting in their apartment, and no other music was in this film, but they would still be singing this song because they have this connection. So I agree. um, And I agree that Gosling's voice is a little rough, but I think that adds to his character because he is a jazz performer, and I think that rough, affective tone in his voice adds to the sort of jazz revival quality of yeah. his interest. Um, yeah. But I do know that Emma Stone can't does have other singing credits. Chazelle discovered her for the act, because he and Hurwitz saw her on Broadway uh, in a production of Cabaret. Um, Oh, interesting. I didn't know that. But they saw her on a night that she had a cold, and you could tell in her voice. And that's what motivated Giselle to approach her for the role, because that rawness, again, translates into the the realness of La La Land. I want to talk, before we get into whose LA this is, because that's a real great point to bring out, and there's sort of some controversy surrounding that. I wanna sure. to touch on the party scene, the pool party scene, where yep. uh we get the the first real interaction between Mia and Seb beyond sort of just blowing each other off.
0: Oh, so this is this is the day party, not the not someone in the crowd party.
1: This is the day party when we get Sebastian in a really bad eighties cover band.
0: Which is awesome. Like so yeah, I'll let you intro the scene but like real quick for some insider baseball thing for the 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 Someone in a crowd sequence that took them two weeks to shoot because neighbors would constantly like see what they're doing, call and complain and the police would repeatedly come and shut (laughs) down production. And so they would be able to film for about three hours, shut it down for three. And then eventually they would have to take out all the music in the background of like just playback because the neighbors would get so pissed. And so that's a little, like, cool thing I read earlier.
1: I want to talk a bit about the songs that don't get included on the soundtrack, which I wish they did.
0: Well, Like, I bought the soundtrack. So I bought the soundtrack right after I saw the movie, like, on my phone driving home. And I was upset that I didn't get those,
1: like, four 80s covers. <laughs> right? I mean, and I think they actually add to the thematic uh, yeah. lyrics. Um, yeah. We get take on me. And yeah. we get she runs. Yeah. Um and, uh, we get sort of in the background, we get a Eurythmics, I think, um, song off like, uh, of a up, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, and sort of those three set up this confrontation between Mia and Seb, uh, about the seriousness of being an artist. And I wanted to get your take on that.
0: Yeah, I th- so I can like pull, I can extrapolate dialogue out of that sequence, right? And I think. I think the what's even better is like you have Mia, she's sipping a not Mountain Dew, which is Mountain Dew after she requests Iran and he gives her like the look and she has that super adorable dance sequence, <laughs> which is like... I like I might have fallen in love with Emma Stone like right when I saw her like doing that. I'm like, I wasn't really attracted to you before, but I am now for whatever reason. <laughs> <laughs> and so like when after that sequence he walks over and he makes that comment of like, yeah, sorry, I was being a little bit curt or whatever <laughs> in the club in like the previous season and he's not relishing the fact but he's disgusted and he, the, the phrase he uses is this is like very hard for, for like a a serious musician to like deal with right now and she like <laughs> just laughs out his face She's like my god did you really say that and i think that's incredibly telling of like what that where that character is at that moment he's arguably at his lowest point and she might be the one that's acting as this catalyst to start bringing him out of it so song titles we have is i ran they're foreshadowing like what's to come and i think that's really interesting and and just because we know how hands-on chazelle is with everything it's like that's no accident like he, he knew exactly what he was doing
1: yeah, I mean, even take on me, we get that yeah. tension uh, later on in the um the a lovely night sequence. Even though we sense that there's actually some chemistry there, I mean, yeah. I want to talk about that scene in a bit. Um, but we get all these references, I should say, uh, both visually about other movies. And also, um, again, in these songs. Uh, So my favorite song is actually a song I hated when I first saw the film. Um, (laughs) Someone in the Crowd is an amazing song that explains the whole movie and it serves as the overture of the film, even more so than uh, Another Day of Sun. Because Someone in the Crowd is the perfect phrase for every visual cue between uh, Mia and Sebastian. So we get yep. Mia ma- walking across the "You Are the Star" mural. She's looking at this uh, painting of Marilyn Monroe and Charlie Chaplin and other amazing stars, and she hears uh, Mia and Sebastian's theme in the restaurant, and that guides her in. Um, so she's seeing the star inside that restaurant in Seb, and that sort of adds up to the ending where they um, they don't end up together, but they uh, they're important in each other's lives in helping each other reach their dreams.
0: And you're talking about just that small piano overture, right? Just that that five
1: keys? Right. So yeah. so um, Mia's leaving the party, uh, her car got towed, and she's walking past this mural. And she sees the mural first, and then she hears this theme. So that visual cue, we get a reference back at the end when we get Mia's surprise face at Seb's Jazz Club yeah. amongst all these other people who are not known so now she's someone in the crowd right and we keep getting these sort of callbacks and it's sort of the quintessential song that reveals everything because seb and mia help each other aspire to their dreams and reach their dreams so i just think it's the la la land song
0: yeah Yeah, i'll have to agree with you and so okay so if i'm just taking a song as a whole like i'm looking up lyrics as like as we're going um i think like there's the Yep, there's the one like lyric tonight we're on a mission tonight's a casting call so it's like this idea of they always have to be on because you don't know like where like opportunity is gonna arise. Um, so yeah, I, Josh, that's the first time I've ever heard anyone mention that like analysis of someone in the crowd because when we first hear it, right, it's in it's in Mia's apartment. That's the first time we hear the music, right?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, she's sort of looking in the mirror in the yeah. fog after a shower, um, yeah. and her roommates barge in. Um and again, this is the this actually I was watching this scene for the first time and I was all like, oh god, am I gonna hate this movie? That yeah, I, I anticipated for because I thought it was gonna be uber musical. Yeah. But then once you get to the end, you realize no, this is the song that makes sense within the from from start to finish, and it's the it's actually the most musically song. Yeah. But you get a lot of things both visually and uh, lyrically and instrumentally, especially yeah. if you just take uh, uh, Mia's sort of breakdown of the song. Sure. Uh, as she's e- exiting the bathroom at the party into the scene again and the party starts uh, going crazy again, you get this snow element that uh, is a is a foreshadowing of the snow element in audition with her aunt, uh, which we'll talk about later. But again, it sort of brings together this whole movie into the fantastic package that it is.
0: Yeah, so for me, if I had to pick a favorite song, it has to deal with like significance of the film itself, as well as the characters and the narrative structure. And I think it's me and Sebastian's theme. I think we're presented with that theme in so many different ways. We're presented in just simple one hand on the keys, just playing those like five notes. And sometimes those are like twinkle in the stars, like little callbacks of like, pay attention to this because something's happening right now. But I think when you just go through how that song is put together, it starts off insanely sweet and slow moving and sweeping. And then by the end of it, you get how they call it in the movie, like Sebastian's freak jazz. And then by the end of it, it moves back into this like the sweetness of the ending. And I think that's they encapsulated the entire freaking plot of the movie in. I mean, this is all Hurwitz. So they put the entire plot of the movie in one song. You start sweet and you get violent and like emotional and we don't know what's going to happen. And then it ends and it ends in such a beautiful way. And doing that, it isn't easy. And for them to make a conscious effort of. We're going to tell the movie in, in two minutes, but you're not going to know we're going to do it until you sit back at home and you start thinking about it. Then once I realized that, after my like third time, I'm like, oh my god, this movie just got so so much more in-depth than I even thought.
1: Seb and Mia's theme really does act in sort of that emotional quality of the film and sort of serves as the tension between reality and uh, the dream state, especially since we get sort of the... The break out of the dream state with sort of a text tone or a phone call. And yeah, it's sort yeah. of with always with that theme. Um, and then we get that theme brought back up in the summer montage. It's the same theme, just, yep. um, a more joyous version. And it sort of just transforms with the relationship into the, the epilogue and ending, which it's just fantastic.
0: When you realize like what they're doing with the music in the film, it's you can take out like the big musical numbers. And you can still tell the story with music because what they do is they take these themes and these songs and the way they just weave it through the entire thing and they change the speed and the, the tempo of it and like where it's, where it belongs in the movie and how it's cued and what they're using it for. And you're just like, I don't know what's happening when you're watching the movie, but you get home, and you start thinking about it and you dig deeper. You're like, this is smart. This is smarter. <laughs> this is genius. This is like theory of relativity smart, like how they're doing this throughout the entire movie. And I'll tell you, it's what's funny is like the first time I saw this, I took a date to it. We left and I brought up this point. I'm like, isn't that crazy? Like how, how the music is like, if they take like three or four themes and they just weave it throughout the entire thing. And the first thing she says is, yeah, I don't think they did that. Needless to say, we're no longer dating. Not because like that's the reason.
1: Let's be real. That was the
0: reason. That was the reason. I was like, get out of my car right now.
1: <laughs> So, um you sort of mentioned that, uh again, you joke around that you don't really like L.A. Keeping that in mind, what is sort of your envisioning of Los Angeles before seeing La La Land, and how has it changed with the film?
0: Okay, so, before you see Los Angeles, and it is granted, like, I make the joke all the time I don't like L.A., but clearly I do like some pockets. I have great memories at the Griffith Observatory with an ex-girlfriend. It's only when you kind of get to the poshness, the turned up nose, the the dirtiness of the city, the pockets where it's less than desirable, not because it's crime or anything. It's, they're not like my vibe of people. I'm very laid back as a person. Mm -hmm. So when I see, it's the same equivalent of like when I go to New York and you see like stockbrokers all the way, I'm like, oh, you're not my people. This is LA. And I think that's like the turnoff of me for LA. Like the traffic's bad and everything. I'm like, oh. So I think it's like, not the aesthetic of LA. I think it's everything besides the aesthetic of LA that kinda of drives me nuts. I have to go in for work all the time and it's always a headache. I'm like, oh god, I have to go to LA. So before that's that's my take on LA, I think after this is the movie does a brilliant, brilliant job of showcasing these key pieces of LA that I might not think about. I didn't know during the summer montage they're walking across a bridge and that's technically Pasadena, but it's like structurally like very famous. And so that's when you're getting all these different type of architecture of L.A. and you're getting these pockets of of culture. And I think that's maybe what I've been missing from the Los Angeles experiment. The experience I like putting up my hands in quotes is you need someone to show you L.A. to really appreciate L.A.
1: And I think that has something to do with I mean, I could describe it as a quilt. Um, You have to find sort of the, the patches that you like and sort of know that there's these other parts that sort of coexist but don't have anything to do with each other and that's okay, but we have these different experiences and that's sort of what we get in L.A. And um, we get this parallel between Mia and her aunt and I would say we get the old City of Lights of Paris and we get this new City of Lights in L.A. And we get that in sort of... Griffith Park acting as a gateway to the stars, as I read in an article, both literally and figuratively, just as the Eiffel Tower did in the last century. Um, And you get this mixture of languages, races, classes, and other cultural indicators that span through a sprawling landscape, uh, again with the quilt. And um, uh, this movie is about exploring a fragment of the city. We're not saying that this is the only story that happens in LA, because there is no LA story. I mean unless you watched that Steve Martin film but right I have <laughs> That's that a coming deep dive right there I um, like that <laughs> <laughs> but yeah there is no one LA story it sort of gets made with every dreamer with every native uh interacting with one another and um I classify even though it takes place in Pasadena and in uh, Long Beach and in Hermosa Beach it's not uh it's about the creatives on the east side sort of Silver Lake Los Feliz Griffith Park Um, and exploring these dreams, um, and the studio in Burbank, which is the valley, it's completely different, but it, again, you're getting this LA story of creatives pursuing their dreams, and I think uh, Chazelle does a great job in that, and it's relatable, and that's the best part about the, the film. It's LA, but anyone who has ever had a dream can relate to this film.
0: I think you bring up this really good point about like linking Paris and Los Angeles as these like new versus old city of lights. Your expertise on LA is like my expertise of Paris. Like I've stayed in Paris like a lot. Like I've been there multiple times and I know the distinct districts of like how that city is made up. And it's what you explain about LA is a hundred percent the same thing. Specifically, what you bring up with, with Griffith, with Griffith and, um, Los Feliz and Silver Lake. Is Paris's Montmartre, which is the the area surrounding, um, forget the uh, Le Sacre Coeur, the the big giant white cathedral, the cathedral that sits on a hill. And back in the 18th century, that's where all the artists and the painters and the poets lived. And now it's embraced that, and that's where they have like publishing houses, and they have like cheap rent for students that want to like achieve their dreams in Paris. And I think making that connection between the two is great, and I think. Once you see the ending, like the sequence, the epilogue sequence, you clearly see that on the right side of the screen, you see the Eiffel Tower on the back left, you see the Sakura on the right, and it's these two distinct monuments. Like, and they're just feeding off of each other. And I think if we go into that theoretical lens, we, of course, we can make that connection between old city of lights, new city of lights, and that beam coming off the top of the Eiffel Tower connecting Sebastian's life in Los Angeles. Versus Mia and Mia's life in Paris, where her aunt lived, and where she's booking this gigantic movie that's going to change her life.
1: Yeah, definitely. I think that it's it's made visually explicit, but again, you have to untangle all these knots. And I think yeah. we can kind of we kind of extrapolated that out. But but I, I actually like how um you agree with that L A Paris parallel, and I think we get that also in Mia and um her aunt's. And uh, so let's talk a bit about, uh, actually, before we go there, we talked about the creative transplant in the East Side. Let's talk about the controversy, uh, about whose LA is this. So, um, Rostam, uh, formerly a vampire weekend, now a solo artist, uh, sort of criticized La La Land for his, uh, for its lack of representation. And mm-hmm. I wanted to get your take. So in a series of tweets, he tweeted out, La La Land didn't have a single gay person in it. Furthermore, the people of color written into the script were not really important to the story. John Legend gave a great performance, but his character was, what, a sellout who made uncool pop music? Black people invented jazz, but now we need a white man to come save and preserve it. Sorry, this narrative doesn't work for me in 2016. Yeah. So I want to talk a bit about that. Um, Sort of my take, his first point on it doesn't have a single gay person in it. I think that's sort of overgeneralizing. Because we get two uh, heterosexual couples in, Mia and Sebastian, and then we get his sister and her husband. Right. But everyone else could be gay, bisexual, trans, but it's weirdness. we're just not getting their story. So I don't really like his generalization there um because again we don't we don't know everyone else's story and just because there's the main characters are heterosexual doesn't mean it's neglecting these other characters
0: before we move on to like the race aspect of ty- that second one like i have to agree with you 100 percent. i think you bring up the brilliant point that just because the two main couples we see on screen are heterosexual like for all we know you can't generalize it we for all we know every single other person in that movie could be gay like we don't no, they could be trans, they could be bi, they could be whatever. So I think for someone to take offense, that you really have to dig down and find a prejudice of the movie that doesn't isn't there. And I think if has Chazelle made a comment on this yet? You know? Uh,
1: no, he hasn't.
0: And I think so. I'm not about to put words in his mouth, but I think the idea that what we're discussing this generalization, I think he might agree with us that he wrote a movie with a heterosexual couple at the forefront that the other couple that's I don't know what do you think screen time of that couple is two minutes
1: yeah total yeah
0: if yeah so like for them to be heterosexual I mean yeah okay so could you have had a could you have had Sebastian's sister be a guy and they have a gay wedding that's fine and you could have had that but that's not the story Chazelle tries to take and for someone to take offense to that I think you're really reaching and you're overly overly generalizing like you put it perfectly.
1: Um he uses the hashtag not my Los Angeles and again going back for my take, again, this is not everyone's Los Angeles. It's sort of a, a generalized story about a specific creative amplified. So um and we don't see sort of pockets of the queer scene. But again, we're not exploring the, uh, those scenes. And again, this is a completely separate movie than uh, Real Women Have Curves, who explores the sort of East side of Los Angeles in the more Hispanic uh, sure. nature. That um, so every and even if we just uh, look at um, Reservoir Dogs, that's a completely different Los Angeles.
0: Or you take you take anything from what's what's recent within it. So you have you know straight out of Compton, you have to live and die in, in East LA, you have like all these like great stories and what, what I, yes, to transition away from that, you said he, I'm sorry, like it's vampire weekend. He's the lead of it. Is that what you said? He he used to be in it. Yes. He used to be the lead of vampire weekend. So he brings up the race aspect. And what I just saw today was the ex uh, Los Angeles Laker, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. He has a problem with the movie because the same thing, African-Americans and black culture aren't represented. John legend does a fine job, but he's not significant in the plot my pushback on that is for a person who studied this movie and have seen it multiple times and have read so many articles and just like am enthralled by it. I think that's, that's some BS because like John legend's character is completely integral because if he wasn't, guess what? You could cut him out of the epilogue and he's not this linchpin that changes the entire movie. And you see that from that epilogue sequence, Sebastian just pushes him away and he like shrugs his shoulders and he leaves and therefore you live happily ever after. So You can make the theory that if John Legend didn't exist, if a black man didn't exist in this movie, things would be dramatically different. And that's a credit to John Legend and what he does. And that's another credit to Chazelle for writing this. They embrace this character, not as a villain, because he's not a, a villain in this movie. He's a musician. Yeah, so he's a solid musician. And to take away the fact that he isn't significant to this movie is a detriment to the character and John Legend as embracing this character. And to, like, top it off, if John Legend had a problem with being cast in this movie as a lesser-than-that African-American heterosexual male, he probably wouldn't have done that if you see what he advocates for and what his wife advocates for, and I think it's totally null and void.
1: Right, and I, I agree in terms of the character of Keith. He's essential, and again, he's not a villain, but I do think that there's some validity in in the race issue, only because I think that um, I think black characterizations, I think it does a good job in balancing that. But we get this very, there's no sense of color in LA be- besides white and black. Yeah. So we don't get uh, a lot of Asian characters or um, Hispanic characters beyond the uh, tapas and uh, salsa. Yeah. <laughs> uh, the the characters there. Um so I think it, again I don't I don't think it's a detriment to the film because again we have a specific type of LA that we're examining sure. but right. I think again there's talks of adapting this to stage uh, theater yeah exactly yeah. um in terms of changing that and fixing that I would anyone following me on Twitter might have seen my tweet when I was at Union Station and um I was listening to the La La Land soundtrack yeah. uh, while I was waiting for my train and, um, it sort of matched perfectly. And I think a way to stage the opening sequence might be in changing it from a car central c- culture to this train central culture and bus Because we do get that line in Another Day of Sun about the, um, taking a, a Greyhound to LA from Santa Fe. Yep. Um, and pursuing your dreams without any money. And that's a chance to sort of infuse more people of color into the, um scenery without sort of abandoning the plot elements
0: yeah let me ask you this question Chazelles came out and he said when he's casting the uh another day of sun number in the beginning of the movie he made it a point to cast different body types different races different it could be any sort of economic like status within within that sequence itself so I don't know like that's why I have a hard time like I can see why this race binary is there, but at the same time when the director and writer have come out and they've made you know these leaps and bounds effort to cast everyone in certain situations of the movie, that's like that's my little pushback and it's not to say right or wrong that's like that's just my debate I would throw out there. I'm like, okay, well, what about this?
1: Yeah I agree and I think there's again there's an oversensitivity in trying yeah. to abide by a, pol- a completely political correct culture and I sure. think most people aren't on these extremes most people are uh, sensible in the middle moderates um that we just uh, we just again we need more representation but it not everything is an attack on everything as long as there's this open conversation and this dialogue I think we can make um Oscars less white in the future. Yeah. Just to, yeah. <laughs> just as this year I think we get more representation in people of color um yeah. with the best pictures films. Yeah. Um but going off that so I think we touched on the tweets and I think you make great points again. I think there uh Keith is not a villain. He's essential to the plot. And I mean if this was a white guy if Keith was a white guy trying to make jazz neo jazz a thing, then that would be way more controversial than yeah. keith's current characterization
0: yeah and i think when it comes to like really quick when it comes to controversy controversy within within film right now the one i thought of like at the beginning of like the summer movie season was like that new tarzan movie and in that you have uh a gig like a gigantic ripped blonde white guy saving africa no one's really seemed to have a problem with that but so for this like to come out like mm, i don't know about this <laughs> Because when I reviewed reviewed Legend of Tarzan, that's why I I knocked that movie down. I I think I gave it like a flat D or something because the audacity of having in our climate right now a white person saving the African continent, it's not okay. And I think you and I both come to realize within entertainment, we can kind of figure out like what feels okay versus not.
1: Yeah, I agree. And I agree. It's great to have this um, dialogue and sort of keeping everything on a moderate level, especially yeah. now in the political climate. Everything's sure. uh, an extreme. So we need to bring it back into uh, sensibility. Um, yeah. So moving forward. So I just wanted to make a point about how the songs show off L.A. And I think we it happens with the streetlights, the uh-huh. white streetlights with the blue poles. That's kind of a callback to the uh the LACMA street lights, um urban light at the museum, and we see that all throughout the film um and I just want to bring up sort of different songs and another day of sun captures the freeway culture. Someone in the crowd uh catches the pool and the industry parties sure me and sebastian theme- ca- uh captures lounge culture yeah. and the the fact that people ignore music when they're out for entertainment which um, I'll, I'll talk about that in a bit with sort of the L.A. music scene. Sure. Um, a Lovely Night and Planetarian capture Griffith Park and the L.A. Expanse. Uh, the Rialto theme captures Pasadena. uh uh-huh. Summer Montage captures downtown and South L.A., especially the Lighthouse Cafe, City of Stars, Hermosa Beach. Start a Fire captures the venue culture. It was filmed at the El Rey. Okay. Uh, uh, the audition sequence captures the real and the real Hollywood. Uh, both film and authenticity-wise. Mm-hmm. And the epilogue captures L.A. as a nostalgic idea that you keep bringing up. So I think, this again, with this movie music, the motifs all tie together into this fantastic Giselle work.
0: Yeah. I mean, I love to add another like nugget of information or like wisdom to that, but I think you hit it on the head, man. I don't—yeah. I yeah. I think breaking up every song and being able to extrapolate specific uh, aspects of L.A. and physical places, like physical locations, is Chazelle being brilliant Chazelle. And so, so yeah, we'll, the very last thing I want to ask you about is his next movie, but we'll wait for that at the end.
1: Okay. Um. And so Chazelle has stated that he was really trying to make real L.A. locations look as fake as possible to yep. get that musical feel. Um, and I interpret that as sort of taking L.A. and making it real and romanticized in comparison to this fake, glamorized L.A. that we see in other movies. Yeah. Um, And he told the New York Times, we've established the tension of the movie right away between really heightened musical fantasia and real urban modern city. This was part of an overall scheme with the movie, which was, as much as possible, use real L.A., do things in camera without digital effects, but try to find those moments where real life looks as fake as possible. So uh, I wanted to get your opinion on that.
0: Yeah, okay, so... What's funny is one of the first things I got into a debate about this movie with someone who didn't like it, right? Mm -hmm. It was his crux of his argument was, that's not the real L.A. I'm like, what are you talking about? That's like the most real L.A. movie I've ever seen. He's like, you know, the part where Mia leaves the party and there's no parking. Uh, there's, There's parking spots everywhere on the street. Is that real L.A.? Like you kind of have to like just let that one go because it's a musical and also they kind of address that by showing the no parking sign. Mm -hmm. You kind of have to just like throw that one out, but I think this is the most accurate like depiction of LA like I've ever seen. And this is from a personal standpoint, this has made me want to explore Los Angeles. Like I've never had to explore it before Mm -hmm. and just see all these different outsets. And I think the fantasy of LA is alive with his shot selection and the use of long, long shot and i think he has like these just sweeping just m- movements of the camera that captures it or like he also expresses it in quick cuts i think like as you get these small moments of just mia or sebastian moving just from place to place he can intersplice quick cuts to just show you that she's physically moving throughout the city not literally explain to you where she's going but just showing you the different culture like for example so the same thing before she meets sebastian in the restaurant or the lounge for the first time you see her Walking through a neighborhood, you see her walking down, I don't know what neighborhood that is, with the the hotel in the background, um,
1: passing. It's actually, I wanted to talk about that, sort of. Yeah. Um, It's sort of the back way of Sunset Boulevard. So again, we don't see glamorized sunset. We see sort of the real sunset, which is like people live on Sunset. Um, but yeah, so it's sort of the back end of um, Sunset and we see the Chateau Marmont in the background. But it, we don't get that glamorized version of it because we see sort of an orange metro bus whip by and we see sort of the the dark alleyways and blue light. So we see, again, the real Los Angeles that's hiding behind this sort of facade.
0: Yeah, and I think like you bring up this real Los Angeles and it's, and it's something I mentioned earlier that they keep bringing up and they actually address it one time. It's like the whole traffic element it's Mm -hmm. as she's moving through the back with you like sunset you see traffic on the right side like not free-flowing traffic this is like there's definitively traffic in the city and then when she's moving through right before the epilogue sequence where they go to sebs she mentions that she does not miss this aspect of los angeles and that's addressing like the gritty like the unglamorizing aspect of living in la that people don't understand until you get to la like when i you and i can both understand that we'll we'll tell a relative or a friend visiting i'm like oh you're trying to get from let's all right let's say like downtown la to hollywood on a friday at five i'm like no nope. you have to go eight, you have to go eight miles
1: it's gonna take you two hours <laughs> yeah uh, there's yeah. there's miles and there's la miles um so yeah so again uh, la is the sprawling expanse and uh it gets touched on and you touch on traffic and i want to go back to that opening sequence another day of sun and um uh, again people say that that's Again, it's this big sequence and it's not realistic. Why would people sing and dance on a freeway? But I have a, a being a media studies, my books come in handy all the time. So um, I have a yep. great counter argument for all these people. So in his book, Watching Babylon, the War in Iraq, and Global Visual Culture, Nicholas Murzoff examines media culture in a post 9 11 world. In a chapter about the changes in suburban consumer living, he talks about the obsession with buying Hummers and car culture as a whole. Uh, in it, he makes an interesting point that really relates to the opening sequence in La La Land. As Rayner Bannham realized in his studies of 1960s Los Angeles, the place of public coming together is no longer the coffee house of the public sphere. Who talks to strangers in Starbucks anyway, but actually the freeway. Here, citizens are together but apart debating with each other on talk radio. Angelinos have long turned gridlock into recreation, although digital devices and cell phones have now made the car a place of work. Gridlock is now the quintessential suburban and urban experience, a badge of honor for those tough enough to take it. So i uh that i read that to everyone who says it's not realistic again we have this sort of isolated personal narratives with everyone within their cars thinking about their dreams but again we also have this shared experience in in this new city of dreams that is los angeles
0: yeah i don't i don't have anything that's another one you just i don't have anything man it's like you you pulled the source you pull i think the aspect that you touch upon is like this is the new like uh inner workings of like society it's we're sitting in traffic and you like you look to the person next to you. They're doing there's someone completely different. You look to the left, you look to the right. These are completely different people that we're all stuck in this awful like situation. So next time I'm just going to get out of my car and start singing to see if anybody joins me. We'll see what happens.
1: But yeah, I think yeah. that it was interesting Um, that again, this it seems out of proportion, but again, it seems realistic at the same time. And I, again, you mentioned that you took some of your friends uh, to see La La Land when uh, you heard they hadn't seen it. I did that with one of my friends, too, and her, uh, with a little brother. He walked out and he was like, it just seemed real. It did. I mean, it seemed real and it seemed like a dream. And it, that's the visceral nature of the mm-hmm. film. And uh, I wanted to touch on that in sort of the meta commentary of Audition. And what I mean by meta-commentary here is that I think the music perfectly lines up with the lyrics and the thematics yep. of the scene. Um, so Mia, uh, it starts off by telling a story. And she, um, it's very conversational. And she sings, she leapt into the Seine, her aunt leapt into the Seine, the river. Yep. But again, using the French pronunciation of the word scene, uh, Mia leaps into the scene in the song right after she sings that. See, that's the moment where she starts singing. So again, we get into the scene with these lyrics. So again, people have criticized that song for being weird in the way that it starts. But what do you think about uh, that sort of cadence moving from storytelling into singing?
0: Oh, so once again, this is going back to this this what we've brought up of music fitting the, the movie itself. And this not being a musical, this being a musically enhanced movie or music movie. I think of her, you can make the argument, okay, okay, so she started telling the story, and the only way she could get the the correct emotion out of that song is to sing it. at no part does it feel rushed to me at no part does it feel unnecessary again to me. and I think by getting that sequence as the audition moving from speaking to music, you're allowing her to act. You're allowing her to show these, like, quote-unquote chops. You're allowing this close-up of her face and her interaction with the words and the way her her eyes quiver. And you can actually see her singing, like, within the sequence. I know they went back and they ADR'd it. But you can see her actually, like, singing the words. And I think being able to do that is unique to this film. And I think it would have been... When we touch on the ending, I want to talk about um, this this idea of easy filmmaking, and I think if you had Mia just act out as an actress at that point and not sing at all, I don't think it would be as powerful, and therefore – the entire epilogue would, might have been lost.
1: I agree, and yes, uh, she gets into this, and I think that's where she notices that she loves jazz because she notices that music is a part of her, and not just it's not a musical. She's not just belting out into song. We see the process of her having to break out into song because that's the only way she expresses. And I uh, kind of interpret that as she actually sings at that audition because that we get sort of the visual cues that it's, again, a dream sequence. But I think it makes sense that if she were to sing for that, that would motivate the executives to want to put more faith in her and give her the role. So, this, so
0: this, this goes back to the notion of when she first enters the scene, it's it's a four month uh, four-month shoot in Paris with three months of rehearsal, and we're building it around the actress, right? And so let's say she goes in there and she just acts it like an actress without any singing. Okay, so we're, she might get the role. She might not. And the movie can still proceed, this this fictional fictional movie within the movie. But let's say she goes in there and she we're actually interpreting this as literal. She starts talking. She begins singing. Therefore, they're tailor-making the movie to the actress. And therefore, that movie might turn into a musical. And therefore, there's a whole new avenue of creative... This, this creative side of Mia as an actress. And I think by doing that, you're allowed to, like, play with these different ideas and these, like, lanes of narrative structure throughout, like, what happens to these characters, like, moving forward.
1: I agree, and I think you touch on that, and it sort of brings me back to the point that this is Chazelle's own narrative, uh, just put on other characters. Because if Mia were to sing this literally, then uh, we get sort of a devotion back into the musical quality of the film, as Giselle balanced uh, through his career and trying to make this musical uh not getting it funded and then finally once he makes Whiplash getting the funding to make his film and create his art yep. um so that that authenticity in the commentary i think really touches well on the quality of the film
0: Couldn't agree with you more
1: Awesome okay so i want to move into sort of the final couple points so this is sort of my uh bringing it back to stage presence sort of the LA music scene and yep. for anyone who has listened to uh my show If you listen to the uh, Hathi episode, you get sort of the L.A. scene that's sort of indie and the the small club culture. And then in our last episode, we get Jay Woodward, who gets more of the studio culture, working as the sound engineer. And you kind of get that both in this film with Seb and Keith. And uh, I wanted to get to the point, does Seb sell out?
0: Okay, so if I'm saying this, so, so it's hard because I love Seb, right? And I think he's like this extraordinary character. But, do I think he's, do I think he sells out because the club isn't the Van Beek? Maybe, because like that's his dream the entire time, is like owning the Van Beek. But I think this aspect that he never sells out in his life is he actually does learn from Mia that he doesn't have to – it doesn't have to be the Van Beek. The club doesn't have to serve chicken wings and call chicken <laughs> on a stick and beer. It can be a lounge with drinks. They have that brilliant sequence of them just in the bedroom talking about their day and their dreams moving forward. Um, I think the only time Seb does sell himself out is when he joins the Drifters. That's – no, it's not. Damn it. That's not the name of the band. Um <laughs> I'm, I'm going to get it. <laughs> that's the only time in the film I think he sell, sells out because that's what comes – to light during that dinner sequence is and knows he's not chasing his dream and he kind of sells out. And I think Seb then takes this intrinsic look upon himself and realizes, oh, shit, like, yeah, I am kind of selling out even though that's what I thought you wanted. I just, yeah, I think that's the only part of that movie I think he actually sells out.
1: I agree. I think he does sell out, and I think that's where the tension and the relatability of the film comes in because I feel like anyone who has pursued their dreams has been at a point where – you're failing, you think you're failing at what you want to do and you're succeeding at something else. Sure. That you completely are not passionate about. So I think that's where, um, Seb really finds that sort of existential crisis, um, in the sort of Boise sequence. And it's interesting because, uh, just going back to the songs, Start a Fire, listening to the whole soundtrack, that's the song that you hate because it's,
0: it's, it's it sticks out like a sore thumb.
1: Right? Because it's this different quality and it makes you sort of question Keith's sort of musicianship. But if I'm stepping back as a music critic, I would totally put Start a Fire on N D B. Yeah. Because it's, it's a catchy song, but the way that the movie is constructed, you, you hate this really catchy and this really well constructed song. Yeah. Because of this devotion to the characterization. So that's another point I wanted to make in sort of this is not a musical. This is using music to sort of serve a point. That, yes, you can evolve music and make it great and make it innovative. Of course, innovative is sort of what I like to find in indie beat. Yep. But you also have to stay true to who you are. So Keith is not a villain. He's just a different type of person that in Seb's story doesn't mesh well. But that doesn't mean that Keith isn't a great person. That doesn't mean he's not an artist. He's just different. Yeah. I think that's what we learn in the ending and the epilogue and that's sort of the transition that i wanted to get to into the ending so uh, what's your opinion on the ending
0: so this is when so this is the biggest discussion i have about this movie is with so there's three different people that i know that see this movie it's you and me that love this movie that they don't break it down as much as we do and like just think about this there's people who don't like it because it's a musical And there's the people that enjoy easy filmmaking that they are upset that Mia and Sebastian don't wind up together at the end. Spoiler alert, if you're listening to La La Land, like deep dive podcast, if you, if you, you weren't ready, then deal with it. Like you've had, you've had months to see the film by now. (laughs) So when it comes to this, like easy filmmaking, right? The easy thing to do in this movie is either have Sebastian and Mia wind up together have the the epilogue sequence actually come to life and use some sort of like fantastical element to change the ending of the movie but this is why i love the movie is this realization that not all relationships make it people are in relationships at a specific point in their life because it serves a purpose of them realizing something within themselves and propelling their lives forward and it's okay that these relationships don't don't work out, but we can each look at each other in the end. And like, that was a really important, that was a really important time for me. And there's no better example than this movie with these two characters is they're both trying to make it, they both, they both had hiccups and they both needed each other to ultimately like live out their dreams. And I think because this movie does so many things that is quote unquote, uneasy or difficult, It's why I appreciate it. And I think the entire like seven and a half minute epilogue sequence is the first time I saw it, I'm like, I have no idea what the hell is happening right now. But all I know is it starts off with that kiss in the lounge rather than like the curtness of him just like shrugging her off. And you're just like sucked in immediately. And there's no other sequence of that movie that pulls me in like that so fast.
1: Definitely, and I agree that, um, we sort of get this point. It's sort of the perfect equivalent of 500 Days of Summer. We have these people who see 500 Days of Summer as an uber love story, and it's not. It's about a guy who, uh, finds someone and he, he sees the manic pixie dream girl and projects all his fantasies to her, even though she's not the person for him, and he doesn't realize that. And in this film, it's, uh, not, life isn't always a happy ending. Like, you, you always have to, keep uh bettering yourself and and i think that's what this movie makes clear that just because you don't end up with someone doesn't mean it wasn't important people are uh important to your identity and that's sort of what we see in the ending we don't see because if we if we just take the what if sequence you don't see neither seb nor mia reach their potential with each other and that's sort of what you can test with should you live out your dreams or should you sacrifice them for someone and I, I, there's no right answer but you have to sort of you can't have everything in life and that's why it's such a visceral film yeah yeah I
0: I just you get that like so the very last shot of the movie is like that long stare right and that's you have a million words being said between the two characters with one stare and co- bringing this back like I'm throwing my mom under the bus sorry mom if you listen <laughs> to it you're getting thrown out right now is she called me after the movie sobbing and she didn't start sobbing in that movie until Gosling held that gaze and he pulled it's not a smile it's not even like a snicker it's the tiniest of just nose top lip movements that made you say that made you realize that he's okay she's okay they were both in it for a reason and now the end of the movie is okay. And then you have that sweeping overture that just exits the movie and you have the end and it just, it's perfect.
1: Yeah. And it shows that people can move on. And I think that's sort of yeah. something we need nowadays. Um, Especially since we're getting a lot of these political films in uh, just the Oscars this year. Um A reason, sure. a reason to support La La Land as a, as best film is for this escapism and this attention to reality and realism that we get that, even though there's hardships and even though you don't always feel like something is deserving or um, you have expectations and you get disappointed, you can always move forward as long as you persevere. And I think that's what we get from Land.
0: Yeah. And I think that's, yeah, the perfe- the perfect, like bow on the entire story of this movie <laughs> now i was listening to a friend's podcast like they they're based in san francisco and it's a if i i'll admit they're a bunch of bros that don't really know film and they brought up this question and i started questioning myself on it is was that was the fantasy epilogue sequence was that mia's fantasy was that seb's fantasy or was that just an alternate fantasy for the audience to see so okay so i thought about it both ways When you look at the epilogue of that movie, Seb seems the less happy of the two. He doesn't have this very, like, rah-rah demeanor, other than when he, like, introduces his band when he jumps on stage. That's when you feel passion from Seb. But it's him checking the piano, the high keys, him going home alone, cooking chicken, which is hilarious because he's cooking fried chicken is a throwback, another brilliant moment by Chazelle. But he gets to the club and you don't really see him, like, Excited. You see Mia excited. She's excited to be married. She's excited to have success. She's excited to have her daughter. And so the argument can be made that she actually is better off after this relationship. But I think that sequence is just for the audience, the showing that this could have happened a different way. And even though they don't wind up together, we're giving the audience a bit of closure so we're not feeling angsty at the
1: end. Mm, Okay, Uh, that's a good point, but I'm going to actually counter that point. Um, But I think that this is Seb's sequence because we get Mia loving Jazz right before the epilogue and we get her appreciating his side of life. And in the epilogue, if you pay attention, this is the time where Mia's interests come into play. This is the big 40s and 50s, uh, the golden age of cinema, coming into play into Seb's envisioning of their life. We uh, Before that sequence, we get him walking into uh, Seb's and going past uh, an identical visual cue of Mia in a movie to her wallpaper in her apartment. And he comes into the sequence and we get uh, sort of Mia's success played out we get sort of that attention to the uh, the movie musical in the color sequence and we see uh the studio we see the actual set that uh, seb and mia see when they're touring the warner brothers studio
0: yeah they're all, they're awesome uh, bergman and bogart moment
1: right exactly we get that same set that we see early on in the film played out in at the end of the film in sort of that impressionistic stylized quality singing in the rain sort of aesthetic um, so I think this is Seb's sequence only because n- we now see sort of Mia's interests take play into Seb's life. So it's a perfect counterpoint to Mia finally liking jazz. I
0: love that take, man. Never even thought of it like that. I never ever thought of like her loves bleeding into his and not, and so it's now, it's like this whole reciprocal nature, not just one like binary across. So the, the last question I threw on like show notes right before the end is, does what does la la land do specifically that's that deems it academy award winner worthy and do we think it will win
1: um what does la la land do i think la la land plays with conventions i think it gets pigeonholed in the sense that oh it's just playing on old convention it's a musical it doesn't do anything innovative it's really just this generic movie and with generic white actors and i don't think any of that's true i think Chazelle really tries to get every single aspect of his interest into this film and plays with everything and makes you second guess everything. And I think it it really shows in an analysis such as this podcast, that this is not just a simple film that you make just because you want to make a musical. This is explicitly thought out. Everything's connected. Everything's, it's an art house film. And it's just very, very, the attention to detail is very particular. that. I, you only see once in a lifetime with very dedicated directors. So I think yeah. that's what makes it ahead of the rest.
0: So do we think it wins?
1: I don't know if it wins. I think that the only, the real competition would be Moonlight.
0: Yeah, I agree. Did you did you see it?
1: I haven't seen all of it. Okay. I've seen uh, a lot of these sort of in uh, the promotional scenes. And I saw sure. a sneak peek during the, the same uh, director's panel at PopFest. Okay. Um, and I, Barry Jenkins is fantastic.
0: He is great, uh, yeah.
1: Um, and I think the, again, the music in that film is also, I took a listen to the soundtrack and the theme, the composition there too, and it's fantastic. So I think that Moonlight, because of the, the sort of topical themes of the era, sort of, um, exploring yeah. sexuality, exploring masculinity, exploring race, that's also great. And I think they're equal films in terms of stature. And of, of yep. everything else, so I think that it just depends on what the the academy votes on, whether it's um, yeah. uh, innovation in terms of cultural topics or it's innovation in terms of genre, it just depends. yeah, so I think that's that's where the the race is. I think all the other films are fantastic as well, but I think this year you really it all depends on the two directors that did the best work.
0: yeah, I, I, I can agree more um, if you if you're asking me the same question, um my response has been since i saw this movie i think it yes i think it does deserve to win for all those reasons that you've mentioned but mostly i think this is the movie that this country needs right now it's the only movie that gives you this uplifting feeling that wants to sweep you away in like beautiful hollywood cinema and make you feel good and warm and fuzzy and laugh and cry And it doesn't deal with these like very, very heavy tones, even though once we once since we've gone for an hour and 40 minutes, we start picking it apart and you find these small details and you find this brilliance within this film. And I think the way Academy goes also because the Academy loves L.A. movies, specifically Hollywood movies, that it has a leg up. But I've seen Moonlight and if Moonlight won, I will not be surprised because of. The thematic elements, and like you said, the exploration of uh, sexuality and masculinity, and and violence, and and that specific culture it's represented in in Miami. I'm okay with either winning. I adore La La Land, and I love Moonlight. The other thing I have to mention is La La Land is the movie that I want to watch every single day. And as a film critic, that speaks words like. If I never saw Moonlight again, that'd be okay with me. And that's weird saying because I understand how smart and significant that film is. But La La Land is my favorite movie of the year. Like if anyone follows me on social media stuff, I've talked about La La Land nonstop for since I've seen it. And it's every time I make a ranking of my favorite movies of 2016, it's there. And if I can put it on the top of my ranks of 2017, because I've seen it three times within this calendar year, then I would put it there too. But I don't think I'm allowed to do that
1: well you can try i think that you bring up a good point it doesn't discount that moonlight is not a great film and i think that people who are not involved in criticism take that offense like you're either you're either on team moonlight or you're on team la la land you you can't be both and you You totally totally can't be both uh you can be all nine nominees and we sort of this is a perfect way to end it that movies are meant to be enjoyed and the, again at the end of the day if, even if we just take a look at the grammys not not always does the best picture or the best um sure. actor win it's always a, it's always very subjective and our jobs is just to sort of realize the importance yeah. of these films um in terms of their culture and i think we yeah. got there so
0: Thank you, Josh. No, it was a pleasure being on. Oh, really quick before you end the show, ready? The next Damien Chazelle movie, First Man, the biography of uh, Neil Armstrong starring Ryan Gosling. Really?
1: Neil Armstrong? Yep,
0: that's his next one.
1: How is he going to type music into that? <laughs> that was my great conversation with Sean Malloy about La La Land for our Music for Screen series. And with that, that's our show, ladies and gentlemen. I'd like to thank Sean for being an incredible guest. Again, we'll link you up in the description with all his social media needs. I'd like to thank The Good Wives for providing us with our fantastic theme song, Keep It Coming. If you like what you hear, please rate and review on iTunes and subscribe to get the episode first. For more features on indie music, go to IndieBeatMusic.com. That's about it, ladies and gentlemen, and we'll see you next time. Have a good one.